Hey, Chapel Street Church. As you know, over the last several weeks, we've been partnering together with our kids in VBS to support a ministry called Cure. Cure is an amazing ministry that's putting first world hospitals in developing countries all over the globe, but the one we're supporting is in Zambia, in Africa. My wife and I actually had the privilege and joy of being in Zambia and seeing firsthand the work of Cure Zambia and the way that they're not only providing life-changing surgeries for these children and families, but also the great spiritual care that they're loving on them and teaching them the love of God in Christ. They're, it's a wonderful ministry. We're thrilled to partner with them. Our goal is to raise $150,000, and I'm thrilled to tell you we're already more than two-thirds of the way to our goal. So I know we're going to hit the goal. But more than the number of or the, the dollars raised is we want every Chapel Streeter to take part in this. Because every one of you who gives of whatever amount, your money goes to support Cure and other Serve the World partners just like them. Let me tell you a little bit about Cure. Part of our goal and what we're raising is to pay the salary of a surgeon for a year. We met one of these surgeons when we were there, my wife and I. His name is Dr. Jimmy. He was one of the top orthopedic surgeons for children in the UK. And we talked to him about his story and why he would choose to leave that lucrative profession where he was highly regarded to come to the middle of nowhere Zambia. And he said, I'm replaceable in the UK. There are so many surgeons highly trained just like me. But here, I feel like I'm irreplaceable and God's using me in a, in a different way. And so we got to be with him in the operating room while he operated on a little girl named Catherine, repairing her club feet. To see the change in her physical body, what happened in her mother's life, the celebration of the staff and other families that were there was remarkable. And not only that, but surgeons like Dr. Jimmy are not just doing the surgeries, they're training Zambian doctors to do the same. And so when we give to support this salary, it has exponential impact in ways you can scarcely imagine. And I want to encourage you, Perhaps you've never given to Chapel Street Church or to the work of God anywhere. This is the perfect opportunity because every dollar we give goes to cure and then above and beyond that to all of our Serve the World partners who are also doing remarkable ministry. So let's come together and finish our goal of $150,000 and go above and beyond because we serve a God who has, does above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. Thanks for being part of the generosity journey here at Chapel Street Church. Well, I won't uh, repeat too much of what Jeff said there, but it's also encouraging getting to see those videos before we uh, come to the message, just to remind ourselves of, of what God's doing, what he's inviting us to be a part of. And I want to take the chance to, to thank you for your generosity, because that's incredible that in such a short space of time, we've managed to get over two-thirds of the way towards our goal. It's going to make a huge difference uh, for Cure International in Zambia. And so if you haven't given, if you're still looking for how you might be a part of it, uh, you can always take your smartphone, scan the QR code, and there's information there. Or you can come talk to us at the welcome desk. We'd love to help you uh, think about how you could be a part of that. Uh, again, just want to pray for what God's doing there and that he would continue to bring in this, uh, the funds for this project uh, and also that he would continue to work in our hearts as we do that. So let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we're reminded that we hear these words and they transform us. And God, we pray that we would be transformed to have hearts that delight in being generous. God, we thank you so much for the work that you've already done through Cure International. God, we pray that you would continue to provide and, and invite us to be a part of what you're doing in Zambia. Lord, we lift these things up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this week we are continuing our journey through the book of Proverbs, which is one of the most interesting books in the Bible, in my opinion. And uh, we're talking about work this week. So I, naturally, whenever you get talking about work, there's a lot of different things that pop in your mind. For me, I always think about kind of favorite jobs. 
But I don't like to read about the favorite jobs of adults. I like to read about the favorite jobs of children because they always have such optimistic goals for themselves. So I was looking at some of the uh, stats this week on what children dream of being when they grow up. Um, do you all, uh, could you all have a guess at what boys would want to be when they grow up? Firefighter was up there. The top one was a professional athlete. Professional athlete, yeah. That's neat. That doesn't surprise me. Every young boy wants to play for some sports team. Unless you're a nerd like Andrew, then you were like, I don't care about which sports team. I just want to go work for a comic book company. <laughs> but um, what about girls? What do you think that the top profession that girls dream of being when they grow up? Nurses was up there. Nurses was up there. Teacher. Who's a te- you got teacher? Christy. That's exactly right. Teachers. There was, uh, I think it was 22% of all young girls want to be a teacher of some kind. Isn't that interesting? Dream of being this. Uh, both boys and girls also had a high interest in becoming doctors when they grow up. That was their kind of top second choice at a dream job. Uh, the other things were included was movie star. I definitely had that one as a kid. Uh, there was veterinarian. That's a really popular one with kids. Care about animals, want to be veterinarians. Uh, astronauts, right? That's a big one. But I, I want to tell you about one that I had when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I went through these stages. I did movie star. I did uh, like comic books and everything like that. But then the one that I landed on when I think I was, about, I was about nine or 10 is I remember having this conversation with my mom where I said, I want to be a garbage man, mom. <laughs> and my justification for that was I had recently learned about paperwork and doing reports. And I'd, I thought in my mind that garbage men wouldn't have to do that paperwork. They could just hang out on a cool truck all day. So I, I thought I would be a garbage man. But we all dream of different things. We all think about work in different ways. But the truth is, is that work can be something that's really hard for us. And in fact, a lot of those kids who were interviewed about what they wanted to be grow up, when they were interviewed later in life, 67% of the respondents stated that they were not able to achieve their childhood vision of their dream jobs. And 58% still wish that they could find their dream jobs. And so we, I think the truth is, is that in our culture, there's often people deeply dissatisfied with the work that they're in. They grow up and no matter what their dream was, no matter what their goal was for themselves, they find themselves in work that is not fulfilling, that is not joyful. But that's not what God desires for us. God has a beautiful vision of work for us. And the book of Proverbs is one of the best places in the Bible to go to kind of unpack that and understand what that vision is. It answers the question of how do we find joy in work? How do we find joy in work? Now, in our culture, I mentioned, we kind of see work primarily as a means to earn a living. It's kind of a necessary burden on our lives. We see we should do the things that uh, we can do as little for as much as possible. We'll do the least amount of work for the most amount of money. That's kind of our goal with work. But in the kind of rich theology of Scripture, we find that work has a much more important meaning in our lives. Proverbs teaches us the wisdom of God, how to live a skilled, godly life. And what it teaches us is that work is about far more than what we earn. Now, I want to remind us as we go into this, the book of Proverbs is not a selection of promises. Sometimes we can read it that way, and that's not a great way to read Proverbs. Proverbs is not a book of promises. It's a book of principles. It doesn't guarantee us control over our lives, that if we would do A, then we will always get B. But what Proverbs does is it gives us a roadmap to understand how we can navigate life when it goes up and down and it goes from side to side. Proverbs is trying to lead us through a godly life by teaching us wisdom. 
And what, what wise people see with their work is they see that work is, first of all, a calling. Second, that work is worship. And lastly, that work is a reminder. And I think that if we can see through these lenses, if we as Christians can choose to embrace the wisdom of Proverbs and we can see work through the lenses of calling, worship, and reminder, then we'll find joy in our work because it will reframe what work is in our lives. God wants to reframe how we see work because it is not a necessary burden. It is a part of our nature as people and as the people of God. So let's first, let's talk about what it means for work to be a calling. Work is a calling. Now, the summer months are kind of, uh, make me grumpy for more than one reason. I mentioned one early this morning. It gets a little too hot. The other one is my lawn grows at an ungodly rate, and so I need to mow it, it seems like, every few days. Uh, Janae is always on me about that. She gets very mad because it, 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 this last week we went on vacation. There was probably three inches of growth on our grass by the time we got back in one week. It's horrible. But I have to admit that as much as I dislike mowing the lawn, that feeling when you've just got it done and you turn around, you're looking at it and you're sweating and you see everything trim nicely, that's a deeply satisfying feeling, right? Anybody else after you've finished mowing the lawn, you're just like, gosh, I feel good about myself right now, right? In that moment, you are tasting some of what work is meant to be in your life. Work is meant to lead you to this sense of satisfaction that you have contributed, that you have managed, that you have invested in something. This is what Proverbs chapter 6 says about work. This is chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've talked about how the first nine chapters of Proverbs are kind of an introduction to the many different sayings that follow then in 10 through 29. And in this particular chapter, we attend towards the idea of work. And we're given this comparison with an ant. The ant, who we're told has no chief, has no ruler, and yet works. That we should look at that ant and see something in its nature and in its life that teaches us about wisdom, about hard work, and about being industrious and self-disciplined. What Proverbs is literally saying is, if you see work the way that God desires for you to see work, you won't need a boss. Because work will be something that you desire for yourself. It will be a part of your nature. And in fact, if we go right to the beginning of the Bible, work is found right there at the beginning of mankind. Genesis 2, verse 15, we're told the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, it's good to remind ourselves here that this part of the story, in chapter 2 of Genesis, nothing has gone wrong yet. This is the world as it was supposed to be. And God places the man and asks him to do work right there at the beginning before anything's gone wrong. And so those of us who've grown up in church, we kind of tend to think of work in our lives as this horrible thing that happened because everything got broken. But actually, work was always a part of what God intends for us as human beings. It was his desire for us. Adam and Eve were placed in this garden that God had created to cultivate it, to manage it, to cause it to flourish. Isn't it interesting that the first job that God gave to mankind was to be gardeners, to prune and to make sure that things grew well. 
And that's what work is. Work is the act of investing your time, skills, and energy into the domain in which God has placed you. Work is the investing of your time, skills, and energy into the domain in which God has placed you. Wherever you're at, whatever your profession, wherever you find yourself placed in your life, God has put you there to invest yourself and to bring flourishing, to bring life. Whether you're a teacher, a doctor, a business owner, a financier, a land surveyor, a stay-at-home parent, if you're unemployed or if you're retired, there is still an investment that God has invited you to make into the place that he has put you. Work is in fact so essential to our nature that there are consequences to avoiding it. When we avoid work in our life, it can have a deep impact on our soul. We're told in verses nine through 11 of that chapter six, it says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What it's telling us is that work is so essential to who we are as human beings that when our life, life is devoid of work, it causes a kind of poverty on us. And not just financial. Obviously, if we're not working, we face a lack of resources. But even in deep in our souls, I want us to recognize that he says, a want will come upon you like an armed man. And if you've ever had a period of unemployment, you know what this is like. When I first moved to Illinois, I was looking to work in, in ministry and in church, and there was no job openings. And it took me about three months to find any job. I eventually ended up working at DeVry University as a counselor. But for that three months, I faced a a discouragement and a depression that I had never encountered in my life before. To not be able to apply myself to some kind of work. I didn't realize how much work meant to my own soul until I didn't have anything to invest myself in. Thomas Aquinas once said that there can be no joy in living without joy in work. I think that's true. And as Christians, it's our duty to kind of counteract this narrative that we find in our culture that says, no, work is only necessary to make sure that we've got dollars in the bank. Actually, we should confront that and say, actually, there is joy to be found in this calling that God has given us to be workers in his world and in his kingdom. And we can do that in a handful of ways. First of all, we can work hard. Christians should be a people who work hard. Proverbs 12, 11 says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Remember that the goal of Proverbs is to teach its reader what is wise. What's the wisest way that you can live your life? And what it tells us there in chapter 12 in that one proverb is it says actually one of the least wise things you can do is to pull back from work, is to avoid work. Whoever follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So let me ask you, are you avoiding work that might be in front of you right now? Not just in your career, but in your family, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your community. Are you filling your time with what could be called worthless pursuits? I once had a pastor say, it was very convicting and challenging, that a Christian should always go to bed with their tank empty that we should give everything that we have every day to work for God's glory in his kingdom. In our career, in our home life, we should be people who work hard. We should also be people who work with integrity. With integrity. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, 
but a just weight is his delight. The idea there is that the false balance, the, the idea of cutting corners, cheating your way through, giving less than your honest amount. It's an abomination to the Lord. That's a strong word. See, being people of integrity in our workplace is no small thing to God. We are called to represent his heart. Again, no matter what our workplace is. Proverbs also teaches us that we should see things through to completion, that we shouldn't just be people who work in spats, but that we should be focused and dedicated. We're told in Proverbs 12, 27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. I love Proverbs because there's so many lines like this that are so interesting where you say, well, what, what does that really mean? But think that through with me. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. The idea there is that someone has caught their prey but they don't go to the effort of cooking it. They put the effort in on the front end, but they don't finish it. They don't see it through. So they don't get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. The wise, the diligent, will get precious wealth because they see things through to completion. Because they want to see the whole job done. Now, procrastination is a problem all over the world, and I'm probably a poster child for procrastination. I'm terrible at it. And yet the word of God convicted me this week and challenged me this week that as Christians... To work wisely means to not procrastinate, but to see things through. Tim Keller says, in short, work and lots of it is an indispensable component of a meaningful human life. It is a supreme gift from God and one of the main things that gives our life purpose. But it must play its proper role, subservient to God. So how do we, how do we orient, and orient ourselves in this calling? This great calling that God has given us to live a life of work, of working hard, working with integrity, seeing things through to completion, no matter where God has placed us. The answer is that we have to reframe the way that we see work and see work not just as a calling, but as an act of worship. Work is an act of worship. Now, I almost brought with me today the the Father's Day card that my son Jonathan made for me. He's eight years old, and I love whenever Jonathan makes something for me. Now, you can imagine eight years old, he's, he's no Van Gogh, but he will sit for probably a, a good hour and think about how he can create something for me. And he does the same thing for his mom on Mother's Day, or birthdays, things like that. He loves to pour himself into creating a birthday card. He'll write a really heartfelt message. He colors it in. He does all kinds of things. And what I see in that moment is someone who wants to put work in because of great love. Whenever I, he comes in and brings me that card, no matter what it looks like, I feel so loved by my son that he wants to go to the effort of creating something for me. Now that is similar to what the idea of work as worship is. When we see our work as worship, it becomes an act of love that we can offer to God and we can offer to other people. Worship is an extravagant display of devotion towards something or someone. Actually, the most common word in scripture for worship means to bow down. And so work is worship is then thinking about how you can invest in your domain, invest in whatever it is that God's given you to work on as an act of great love and affection, as a display of devotion. This is why Proverbs 16, verses three through four says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
16 is urging us, see your work as something that should be offered to the Lord. I also put verse 26 in there because if you go down in chapter 16, you'll come to this line, verse 26, it says, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth edges him on. The point there is that if you have a desire for God, if you have an appetite to grow in your faith, you will have an equal appetite to work because those two things go together. A worker's appetite works for him. It drives him, it moves him forward. And if you desire to worship God, it will move you in your work. Actually, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word for worship, one of the most common words for worship in the Hebrew language is the same word as for work. Worship and work is the same word in Hebrew. The word avodah. It means work, worship, and service. And so, the idea of worship and work go right next to each other. That's why we want to commit our work to the Lord. That's why we want to bring it to the Lord because we know that our work is an act of worship. When you're grinding through paperwork, when you are meeting with clients, when you are talking with your supervisor or your boss, when you're sitting in interviews, when you are cleaning, when you are building, when you are teaching, when you are caring, you are engaging in an act of worship. You are offering to God the work of your hands as a way to honor him and show your affection for him. You see, the way that this reframes work for us is that when you go to your work, you're not working for you, you're working for God. When you show up at your place of employment, you are there, not for yourself, but for God. To represent his kingdom, to invest in his kingdom. All of the things we do in our work proclaim something about our devotion, proclaim something about what our highest source of hope and joy is. And I think this is one of the biggest hurdles to a healthy understanding of work for us is that we have, in our culture, we've secularized work. We have made our professions and our work something that has nothing to do with God at all. We've told ourselves that it's got nothing to do with the beauty of God or the things that God's doing in my heart. It's simply a way to cut a check. But actually, some of the most important work God will do in your heart will be as a result of the work that he gives you to do. The transformation that will happen in your life will come about because of where he has placed you to invest yourself. This is why in Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes this, whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord, not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling the Colossian church, no matter what you're doing, where you're at, if you're applying yourself to something, if you're investing yourself in something, you need to understand that what you do there it's for Jesus. Amen. It is a signal of how you feel about him, what you have found in him, and it communicates to the world something about him as well. Eric Liddell, really famous runner in the Olympics, once said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Such a great quote, because Eric Liddell as a Christian is discovering what it means to do whatever you do for the glory of God as an act of worship. All general work is an act of love for God and for your neighbor. And so here's the hard part for us, is that true laziness is a refusal to love. Sluggardliness, as Proverbs calls it, is a refusal to engage in loving God and loving your neighbor. Proverbs talks about the sluggard a lot. It's another one of those uh, titles in Proverbs that's really fun because we don't talk that way now. 
But the sluggard is this one who is lazy, who's slothful. He doesn't invest himself into the work that God's given him to do. He wants to avoid it at all costs. He wants to do the minimum. You might be familiar that slothfulness is one of the seven deadly sins. Now, the seven, seven deadly sins are not a biblical idea. There's nowhere in the Bible you'll find a list of the seven deadly sins. However, the Bible does say that slothfulness and sluggardliness are dangerous in our lives. They're dangerous. Book of Proverbs notes that the sluggard is one of the least wise people in the world. They don't see the need of their own soul to contribute. But more than that, the sluggard doesn't appropriately fear God. The sluggard doesn't understand that they have been created for a purpose. When we see work as worship, it changes our heart. This is an interesting proverb. Proverbs 11.26 says, The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. If workers' worship changes our heart, this proverb is important because what it's doing is it's revealing how we should work. How we should work. Why do the people curse the one who holds back grain? Why do, why do the people curse that one? It's because for all his work, he's kept it for himself. His work was purely selfish. All that grain, all that seed that he's planted, it was only for himself to make as much profit as he could. But a blessing is on the head of the one who sells it. Because that person sees their work as a way to contribute to God's good creation, to bless their neighbors, to love and serve their neighbors. No matter what your profession is, there is a way in which God is using it to bless others, to encourage them. Whether you're a salesman and you're providing things that people need, whether you're a financier and you're helping people navigate their finances, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a school teacher, God has given you work to do that will bless your neighbor. So Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, actually said that we respond to the call to love our neighbor by fulfilling the duties associated with our everyday work. One of the best ways you can love your neighbor is to simply do the work that's in front of you to do. To find places of need and say, I'm going to apply myself to this. I'm going to empty my tank. I'm going to give everything I've got to investing my time, my energy, my resources into the domain into which God has placed me. That's why that we do service projects like painting at Schneider. It's because when we apply ourselves to work like that, we are loving our neighbors. We become more than just a people who strive towards this ideal, but we become a people who live it out, who put it into practice. We can't begin to measure how much our work might impact the teachers at that school, impact the families and the students at that school, and impact the community that sees the church willing to work for the good of their neighbors. See, there should be a holiness to our work. Because it's worship, there should be a holiness to our work. Holiness is, means to be set apart, to literally be cut away from everything else and moved to the side. So holiness in work means that our work should look different than the rest of the world. As chapter six has already told us with the ant, if we observe the ant who has no master telling them what to do, we should be a people who shouldn't need to be told to work, but seek it out as an act of worship. There's an odd phrase that I was thinking of this week, but if our work's to look different, you should be able to smell Jesus on the work of a Christian. When you see a Christian work, you should be able to feel the presence of Jesus motivating them, pushing them, leading them, 
controlling them, encouraging them. And that leads us to the final lens through which we should see our work. We should see our work as a reminder. Wise people see their work as a reminder. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Why should we see work as a reminder? What does it remind us of? It reminds us of the God who's worked for us. Worked in us and through us. Why is work so important? Because we have been loved and saved by a God who has chosen to work on our behalf. Do you know that the God of Scripture, that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, stands apart from every other divine figure? Because to my knowledge and my study, he's the only God who created human beings and then chose to work on their behalf for them. In the enumeration, different other historical documents that people like Dr. John Dixon has told us about, the gods create human beings because they want to avoid work. The gods create human beings so that they can be the workforce, they can be the slave force and do all the things that the gods don't want to do. And yet in the Bible, we find a God who again and again works for his people. The first occurrence of God's presence is in a garden in which he creates, he sculpts, he works for six days to create something for us. He comes as a gardener. And then later we're told in the New Testament that when God appears in the flesh, what is his profession for 30 years of his life? A carpenter. He works with his hands. He does heavy, hard labor. See, our God is not afraid of hard day's work. And as familiar as we might be with that, I want you to understand that in the landscape of spiritual thought, it is shocking to know that we serve a God who would do that for us. Who didn't just work as a gardener, as a carpenter, but who worked as a savior, carrying a heavy cross on his shoulders, striving on our behalf, giving everything he had on our behalf. That's what work reminds us of. Jesus was the embodiment of the ethic of work that we find in Proverbs. No one has ever worked harder than Jesus Christ, period. Our work pales in comparison to his. And that's why Paul says, all of the work that has ever been achieved in your life is by the grace of the God who has loved you. Everything that you have achieved is God working in you and through you. That's why the Bible celebrates his work. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, meaning our work, our effort, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's such a great passage because it outlines perfectly for us what God's work is and what our work is. It outlines God's work in those first few verses, eight and nine. It says, by grace you've been saved through this. And this is not your doing. This is not our work, your salvation, your hope, your future. That's not your work. That's God's. God has worked on your behalf to do what is necessary to bring salvation to you, to bring hope to you, to bring healing to you. That is his work. And that transforms our work in a few ways. 
First, it reshapes our work by removing the need for justification. So many of us in this culture are living to justify ourselves through our work. We're not enough unless we're doing more. We're not enough unless we're excelling in a career or we've got our dream job. And yet, knowing that we've been saved by grace through faith, that the God of the heavens who has worked on our behalf has loved us completely, sets us free to not work for ourselves, but to work for him. It also creates humility in us. Because grace is not something that just applies in a spiritual sense. It's not just something that purchases heaven for us. Grace is the means by which we live our lives minute to minute. That's why Paul again says to the Colossians, I need you to understand it's God who's working in you. Paul was one of the most hardworking people on the face of the earth. He had studied, he had traveled, he'd done all kinds of unimaginably difficult things. And yet what does Paul say? None of that work was me. It was the God who loved me, working in my life, moving through me. Sometimes we can feel like the, the achievements that we have in our career was a result of us. And we say, I earned that. I made that. And yet the intelligence that you have to do those things, the skills that you have to do those things, who gave those to you? Who gave you the mind that you have, the body that you have, the God of the heavens, who by his grace purposed you for work. And then that work, God's work, makes way for our work. He redeemed us so that we can walk in the good works that he prepared for us beforehand. His work was to make us capable of doing the things for which he purposed us. By giving us his spirit, by adopting us as his children, he redeems us so that we can walk in the good works he prepared for us. His work gives incredible purpose to our work. It means that our work is not just some passing unnoticed thing, but in the eyes of God, it's contributing to his kingdom. It matters greatly to him. No matter what your job is, God's word validates your work as something that matters. I discovered this for myself when I worked at DeVry University. I mentioned earlier that when I moved to Illinois, I couldn't find a job in ministry. I wanted that so badly. I'd kind of come to this place in my life where I felt like God was calling me to be a pastor, to work in youth ministry of some kind, and I searched and I looked and I couldn't find it. So I ended up at Dravai University, which was a, it's a college that's mostly online. So I would spend my work days in a little cubicle talking to irate students on the phone about their finances and about their classes. I felt great. <laughs> I would go home from that job and I would say to Janae, I just, I know that we've got to pay the bills. I've got to have some job of some kind, but I just, why won't God answer this desire of my heart to, go, to have my dream job, to go work in the place that I want to be? It's a, after all, it's working in a church. It's a holy thing, right? It's godly stuff. It's good ministry. Why wouldn't God give that to me? And the answer is because God had a lesson for me to learn at Divine University about what work was. I believe with all my heart that God kept me there for a couple of years to teach me that I was not a DeVry for myself, I was there for him. I was not talking with those students for my benefit. I was not spending all those hours listening to their concerns and their fears and their struggles for my benefit. It was so that they would know the heart of God for them. I was just as much a pastor at DeVry University as I am in this church. And can I just, I wanna challenge everybody in this room, 
whether you carry the title of pastor or not, you have been invited to shepherd people in your workplace and in your life and in your sphere of influence. Demonstrate the heart of God to them. Every single one of us are called to do, to take what happens in this place and in this room and in these ministries here in this church and this family and take it out to our workplaces and let the life of the church not be stuck inside four walls, but to bleed out into every area of our culture and our society. God wanted to teach me that work matters in ways that I didn't understand. And today I pray for us that our hearts would see work rightly, that we'd see through the lenses of work as calling, work as worship, work as a reminder, so that we could be the people that God has called us to be. So we could do the work that God has called us to do. Let's reframe our work. Choose to do that every day. To see it as God sees it. To go forward in the wisdom of God so that our work would not be in vain, but that we would find joy in it. No matter whether it's our dream job or not. So that we would flourish in it and so that we would bring great glory to the one who has worked for us. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you that you are the God who has worked for us. God, that your hands cradled us, that you put your hands into the dead at the beginning of creation to breathe life in us, that you came in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, to work with your hands, to have those same hands nailed to a cross for us. God, what scandalous grace it is that you are the God who has worked for his people. Lord, may we as your church, as your family, as your children, model that same heart to the world. May we work with all of our hearts so that the world may see the God who has worked for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.